This morning I invite you to turn your Bibles, book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We're actually going to read two texts this morning. Ephesians 5, then we're going to be going over to 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. And so if you want to uh, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 6 and then go to Ephesians 5, that's fine as well. So we read out of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25 through verse 33, and then going over to 1 Corinthians 6, verse uh, 9 through 20. We'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. They will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor, adulter, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God." All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. For he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a, at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, we continue our study of the recipients of the letter of Jude. To examine our place there. And if we are qualifying ourselves to be among that number, we are taking this as an opportunity to carefully examine theological words that we tend to just accept and move on and uh, anticipate that in a sermon they would just uh, be defined and be covered in the introduction. But we are taking a lot longer. As you can tell, this is now our fifth week on these words. 
uh, our second week on the word sanctified, that we are the ones who are sanctified by God the Father. We had looked extensively last week at God's work in that respect, that it is not a unilateral and uh, complete work, and we're going to look a little bit more at that today, but that it is initiated by God. It will be ultimately fulfilled by God, but it requires something of us as well. That much like the idea of that we are the called of God, uh, we are also the sanctified, and we are going to see that there is a historical facet to sanctification, and there is a present facet to sanctification. And once we begin to understand that, that there is not only a divine but a human element, there is a past and a present element to this term, we begin to understand its ramifications for us when he says that you are the sanctified. Uh, that is a, like the idea of the, you are the called, is that as you heard the call of God, uh, you also have experienced the sanctification of God, and it calls us to something. And these are going to be really important when we get later on in the book, and we're going to find out, well, God expects something from you because you are the called, you are the sanctified, you are the preserved. And so what does God expect out of those that have that title and that description uh, and have benefited from his work in our lives? And so we are going, we looked last week extensively at several passages, uh, especially in John, where we looked about that it was out of his word of truth that we find our sanctification. And I have set my notes down somewhere when I put my hymn book away. That's probably not a good thing to mix up those two things. And so we have uh, our sanctification built upon the word of God, that that is the instrument God used, and we focus on that. Sanctify them by thy truth, your word is truth. And so we focused on that work of God. How does he do this sanctification? And he does it through his word at work in our lives. And we know that while God breathed the word and thus is inspired word of God, that it is also the Holy Spirit who illuminates us to its truth. And so we see, as we're going to see here today, that you can't say, well, it's just the Father doing this. But the Father's element in that is to give us his word and his revelation. That there's also the Son involved, and we're going to see that. We're also going to see the Holy Spirit involved. And so this is the triune work of God, your sanctification. But there is a fourth person involved, and that is you. And we cannot miss the fact that throughout God's word, we have, in a correlation with your sanctification, commands. And those are commands to be obeyed. That God gave you his word to set you apart, to make you holy, to sanctify you with an intention that you would read it, have the Holy Spirit illuminate your mind to it, open your heart to it by his convicting work. And yes, conviction isn't a bad thing. It is a really good thing. Uh, you might say, well, I don't like it. Well, that's true. We don't like conviction. But it is the means by which we recognize that something has to change in our life. And it's much like pain. Would I like to have a pain-free existence um, these days at my age? Yes, I would love to have a pain-free existence. Uh, I would love to not feel the aches and pains of age and of abuse to my body. 
but I also recognize that pain is very beneficial because without it, I wouldn't know that something was wrong and I wouldn't correct it. And so pain is a great blessing because by it, we know, oh, I should stop touching that very hot thing or that very sharp thing or that very crushing thing. I should react. And it calls for you to do something. And that's what conviction does. It calls you to action, just like pain calls you to do something different. You need to change something. Uh, you can't keep doing that. Stop swinging that hammer in that direction because your thumb is there. Uh, and so those kinds of, that pain is good. And so is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And so he does it through his word, that the word is the sword of the spirit. It's the spirit using it to cut our heart, divide us. Our soul, our bone from marrow, soul from spirit, the very most inner part of us that he can distinguish that and to bring us fuller into our sanctification. And so we saw that last week, the mechanism that God uses for our sanctification. Today we want to look at what sanctification looks like when it's done and being done. And we have to look at both of these, both the past and the present aspect of our sanctification, that uh, it isn't just a, a historical event that happened when we are saved, we are sanctified, that is true, but that's not all it is. The Bible speaks not only of our historical, that we are sanctified, but that we are being sanctified, both. And so we come to some descriptions here, and I have a lot of passage, a lot of scripture here that I'm going to try to go through, uh, and I'm not going to give justice to any of them. If, if I get caught into something, then this will have to be two sermons. So if I want to, if, if the Spirit moves us to spend more time in, in one area than another. Uh, we come to uh, Ephesians, and we find something out about sanctification. And we have a beautiful model that we are very familiar with, we have tainted this model very severely, uh, but we have a biblical model of sanctification. And that is within the relationship between a husband and his wife. And we want to look at that first because it really brings to bear the idea that this is a relational model. Sanctification isn't something that God just comes down and smack happens to you and you have a completely passive role there. That is a Calvinistic view that we do not hold that we will not teach, uh, because it isn't in the scripture. Does God initiate sanctification? Yes, completely, entirely. What instrument does he use? The word of God. What does it require of us? A response. Every relationship requires that back and forth. And so we come to Ephesians 5, and we have... Um, just as we had Christ talk about our sanctification in John, now in Ephesians we have this beautiful model of a marriage relationship and the sanctification and what is involved in it. And so let's look at it here very briefly. Of course, we use this text extensively to talk about the, the, the relationship between your, you and your spouse. Uh, we use it a lot. Of course, I use it extensively in premarital counseling, things along that line. But what we often neglect is the fact that this passage really is handling your marriage as an aside to its real focus. The real focus of this passage is the relationship between you and Jesus. You, plural. You all, there. Got a little southern in there. Y'all and Jesus. This is what it's about. 
your relationship between all of you and Jesus Christ. And so he's going to use this relational model between a husband and his wife. And, of course, as he's using that, he takes opportunity, as every good preacher will do, to interject some things about marriage. Um, but really the focus here is, what's this look like? This, this being a sanctified people um, by God. Sanctified by God. And so let's look at it here very quickly. It says uh, in verse 20. Let's back up a little bit, a little farther than our reading. It says, the husband, in verse 23, is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Again, we see the placement of the word, that the word of God is the instrument used to wash us, to cleanse us, to make us righteous. And we begin to understand that sanctification uh, and holiness is about righteousness. It's about making us holy as he is holy. And here it says that Christ is doing it. And Judas says the Father's done it. In John, we saw the Father doing it. We're going to see another passage where it's the Holy Spirit doing it in Corinthians uh, we're going to see another passage, Hebrews, where it's past tense and future tense. But what I want to look at here is a relational element. So let's think about how does a husband sanctify, set apart his wife? And again, we um, lose track a little bit of the historical purpose of certain elements in courtship. Uh, one of them is the engagement period. And an engagement is a very serious time. And there is a reason why it came out. And the reason was to set apart this woman and to examine her as pure. That is, that, and this is true not just in the Judeo-Christian model, but really in almost every culture, there is this period of setting them apart to ensure their purity before the marriage. And this is true even of... uh, Esther, right? What were they? They gathered up all the young women. What's the first thing they did? Did they parade them before the king? No. They sequestered them for a long enough period of time to make sure that none of them were impure. And that was the purpose, was to set them apart and to say, now we're going to take this period to to essentially assure the purity of this young lady, that there is no pregnancy involved, that uh, there isn't some other man out there in the peripheral that we don't know about, um, but that this gal is pure. And so you set her apart. And when you come to the story of the nativity, what does Joseph do? During their engagement, it is a period of time to set her apart, to prepare to be his own. He is going to take her as wife. And the engagement is a little different than our idea of engagement. From a, from a public perspective, they were a married couple because he had set her apart for himself and essentially sequestered her so that she would, could be examined over the period of time for her purity, that she was appropriately moral for him. And that's why as soon as she showed up pregnant during this period of time, what do you immediately conclude? 
Well, on a human perspective, we immediately conclude, well, she wasn't morally pure, and Joseph is going to do the thing he should do, and that is put her away. But he's going to do it privately instead of publicly. He loved this gal um, and didn't want to do injury to her, and God has to intervene and says, no, and notice what God says, what is in her is pure, is holy. This wasn't a matter of impurity on her part, that this is a holy conception. This is a unique individual uh, work of God in this young lady, and so don't be afraid to take her to be your wife. She has been morally pure, and that was the purpose. And so here Paul is using that illustration that a husband, one, the first thing he does, once he identifies this gal, he sets her apart. He says, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart. Notice the emphasis of this action. The emphasis of this action is, verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. The whole purpose of this sanctification is complete moral purity. That's its focus. We're going to set you aside to be righteous, to be without blemish, to be holy. And that God is going to do this. How does Jesus do this? Through the washing of water of the word. The word of God is going to be penetrating our heart and going to conform us more and more to the image of Christ that we are going to be righteous. That we are going to evidence that work of God in us, that he has eradicated, no, not eradicated, he has slain the sin nature. He hasn't eradicated it yet because we're still in the flesh. He has slain, put to death, the sin nature. Uh, you're still carrying the corpse around. That's why it still has influence in your life. But it has no power. He has disabled it. And he has put in there a new nature. That is the work of God to sanctify, set us apart to himself. And now while we wait for the, for the consummation of this, we wait for the completion of this period of time where we are his bride and yet we are not in his presence. We are sequestered, if you will. Uh, what is expected of us? To respond to that action of his setting us aside by living righteously and godly in this present age, looking for his coming. And there was a big, big deal where the groom would take a procession and go to the house of the bride to collect his sequestered wife. Because she's been determined to be morally pure. And so he has set her aside, and yet we recognize, well, during this time period, there's demands on her, aren't there? She needs to remain pure during this period of time. That there is something required of her, that this isn't just a carte blanche by the groom, but there's something required of the bride here, and we realize that, but its purpose is stated here. Its purpose is that we should be without blemish, that we should be holy, that we should be without spot, that we should be pure, righteous, godly. That when he comes, he finds this glorious church that is separate from the world. That when he comes, we're recognizable because we are so different from everyone else. 
easily recognizable. What do we do with a bride so that she's easily recognizable at every ceremony? <laughs> we dress her in white, don't we? And why do we dress her in white? What is that a picture of? Purity. That's what it's a picture of. Maybe not today, because today it doesn't mean anything. But historically, that's its purpose, to show here is the bride determined by this sequester period called the engagement to be pure and yours alone. And so we are called upon that we have been set aside as Christ's bride. We are to keep ourselves pure so that on that day we are easily recognizable because we have separated ourselves from the world unto Christ. We are not spiritually sleeping around, toying in this philosophy and that ideology and that religious mixture. No, we are single-mindedly Christ's. His and His alone. That we drive our lives completely by His Word. That should define us now. And we come to this and we find its purpose that it, we might be a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, without holy, without blemish. And uh, that's His intention. that we are members of his body, that we are one with him. This is the intimacy that God desires. And this is the second facet of this relational description that Paul wants to get into. Not only that God's intent is to make you holy, the reason you need to be so holy, and you can't be without him. You can't attain that holiness without his work in your life, and we've seen that. Christ prays for us in John 17, and we see that necessity, that Christ has to initiate this. He's really doing the work. Um, he has given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us this new nature, and he has put to death the old nature. He's done all of that to permit us and to empower us to be holy as he is holy. That's a command to you, not passive, not get holy, be holy. So you have an active role to play here. So we have that element that we would be righteous. And there's a reason that is so, so necessary. It's because God, like every husband, wants intimacy. His purpose and goal is to have an intimate relationship with you, to have you in his presence. Where I am, there you may be also. Well, how can you possibly come into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God when we are stained and immoral? How can you do that? And when we think of, well, I'm going to be in the presence of God, we think of heaven. And yes, that's true, but that's not all that's true. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When did the intimacy with God begin? It begins now. Now? Yes. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you, 
that you have of God. You are not your own. You are bought the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. It's God's body. The intimacy with God doesn't start when we get to heaven, the perfect place. It starts today once the Holy Spirit takes up residence here. And why is sanctification so critically important that we are holy? Is because we have Holy Spirit residing in us. The intimacy has already begun. It's always a little disconcerting when I hear Christians say, well, I don't know about that. Well, let's discuss it if you don't know about that. What do you mean? I don't really sense the Holy Spirit. Well, this is something you need to take up then and to investigate and work on. Uh, the Bible does say that you can resist him, you can quench him, which means what? You're breaking your intimacy with him. Because your intimacy with the Holy Spirit demands holiness. For he is Holy Spirit. And if we are unrighteous, how do you expect the righteous God to be intimate with you? There's only one work that he will do in your life, and that is conviction. Conviction, 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 conviction. You say, I am so tired of being convicted. When do I get to have the, this fellowship of the Spirit? When you respond to the conviction and get the garbage out of your life. Correct? Intimacy within this relationship is premised upon being sanctified. How do you expect to have intimacy with a holy God when you foster sin in your life? Not just have it, but foster it, tolerate it, even plan for it. Excuse it, rationalize it. Can I come up with some other terminology that we use? When we excuse sin and, and allow it to, to persist in us, and then complain that we don't have an intimacy with God. And one of the first evidences, I think, of your lack of an intimacy with God is your lack of capacity to grasp his word. Because sanctification is tied to his word. We don't like what we read, so we stop reading it. We don't obey it, and we know we're not obeying it, so we stop investing ourselves in it. And this is the way God sets us apart. And when Christians start to conceive of themselves as being a sequestered bride, that is, an engaged one who is set aside to be examined for her purity. As we come to the wedding feast. You see, the wedding really already happened. The, the covenant relationship happens at the engagement in most um, Eastern cultures. It happens right here, back here. When you get engaged, you really are making a covenant relationship to each other. It is brought to completion at the wedding feast. When the groom comes, gets his bride that's been sequestered, who is his wife. And this is why Samson said, give me back my wife. You might say, well, we never finished the wedding feast. Well, he didn't have to. They were already in a covenantal relationship and he knew it. But they'd given her to someone else. And they knew what they had done. And so we find that, that we are in this period of time 
where we are supposed to be taking diligent effort to recognize that we are already in an intimate relationship. I'm already in this covenant agreement with God. And now while I'm waiting for him to come and collect his bride, our responsibility during this time of sequestering is to be holy. Yes, even in your flesh. I say, well, spiritually I'm trying to be holy, but physically I got these. No, 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 no. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You need to maintain that in your body, physically. And that's why this idea of sanctification keeps coming up. And what do we keep seeing? That you're not going to be immoral. You're not going to do this in your body. You're not going to do that in your body. You're not going to be an idolater. You're not going to... Did you see that back there in 1 Corinthians? Let's go back there to 1 Corinthians 6. Once again, I've already quoted from the last few verses. But look at verse 17. It says, He was joined to the Lord as one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality is the very next declaration stated. Um, your body are members of Christ. You don't conjoin them to anyone else. You are set apart for Christ. And so this intimacy that a husband wants with a wife, that Christ wants with his believers, um, isn't just future, I can't wait to be intimate with Christ. No, it is today which demands that sanctification has to be a historical reality in your life for the Holy Spirit to possess you, and now it has to be a present activity of your life for the Holy Spirit to work in you. You cannot minister outside of that. And so the intimacy is required. That is what God wants. He, doesn't, he didn't just save you just to get you inside the borders of heaven. You know, let you wander around, and I think there's some, someone out there. No, we're not just the travelers that are, that are visiting heaven. We're not just immigrants in heaven. We are the bride of heaven. Which means that we need to be holy as he is holy to be, have that intimacy with a holy, holy, holy God. We, that's why the Bible calls us saints, holy ones. We need to be saints in order to be in, in that intimate relation with God, not just in the future, but today, because we already have that level of intimacy as the Spirit indwells us. Our physical frame is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, making us His, His what? His bride. Don't you know, wives, that your body is your husbands. You gave it to him. It is his. He paid for that. <laughs> we don't pay as much in these days, but I'm still waiting for my, for my uh, bride's prices from my hus husbands, from my son-in-laws. But um, we paid for that. We set it aside. We wanted to see the purity, and we have the intimacy. Our body isn't our own. belongs to our Savior, paid the price, set us aside, made us his own. And he is not, doesn't want us cheapening it by sharing it with a harlot, by sleeping around with every other religious thing out there. No. He wants that intimacy. 
He offers that intimacy, and our response needs to be, we will stay holy. You have made us holy, and now we'll stay holy. And please notice, the expectation of God is that we will be sanctified. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. So you were washed, you were set apart, and it is comparable to that engagement. You were in a covenant relationship, and now you are his. You're identified with his. Uh, We're waiting for the wedding feast, uh, for the fullness of it, but we recognize that I'm already under that contractual agreement, that covenantal agreement relationship of oneness and we long for it to be fulfilled but during this time what am I supposed to be doing keeping my body as a member of Christ not as my own I am no longer Lord over this flesh he is Lord I am his as he is mine turn with me if you will to Hebrews And Hebrews has some scary things to say about it. You might say, if it's an engagement period, what happens if I violate it? And that's a very, if you're asking yourself that, that, that's a perceptive question. (laughs) Because Joseph was going to put Mary away privately because they hadn't been consummated. The wedding feast hadn't occurred. The covenant agreement had been made, but it had not been finalized. And so in this period of time, there is some, some concern. And, uh, and you might think, well, can God break that covenant? No. The, but the question that you really want to know is, can I break the covenant? And that's a lot harder question to answer. A lot harder question. And so we go to Hebrews chapter 2. Begin reading with me in verse 10. It says, For it is fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brother in the midst of the assembly. I will, pray, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what it means to be sanctified. He paid the price, destroyed your enemy, made you his child. A different relational term, but still relational. Made you his brother, made you his child, made you his bride. All of these are relational terms, aren't they? What does God want? Intimacy. What does that require? Holiness. For he cannot be conjoined to that which is sinful. He cannot be intimate with sin. Verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he 
had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted. So God has done this work to bring us to intimacy. Notice that he says there in the term of sanctification that he sanctifies and we are being sanctified. And so He's, remember in, in John, he says, I sanctify myself. Christ sets himself apart that he might then set us apart. And this is what Hebrews is picking up on. You can almost hear the echo of John 17 and what he's saying. Christ sanctified himself so that he could sanctify others. He was holy that he might make you holy. He suffered for you. He paid the price, the bride's price for you. He destroyed your enemies that you might be holy. Now we all, I think, have a good feeling of Hebrews of what it's one of the key characteristics of Hebrews is all the warning passages. Watch out, look out, beware, lest this happen to you, the falling away. Well, let's go to a portion of that. If you'll take me, take, go to Hebrews chapter 10. And this is just before, the passage right before the faith chapter that so many of us enjoy. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at verse 10 and following. Verse 10 says, By that will we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So there's our historical fact of our covenant relationship. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart. That is historical reality for everyone who has believed in Christ. He has set you apart in a covenant relationship and said, you are the bride of Christ. You are mine. I have put my name upon you. Here we go. I'm in the wrong chapter here. Oh, okay. Sorry. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Continuing action. It's not just one event. It is a continuing work of God in our life. He sanctified us and we are being sanctified in addition. Verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he has their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren having boldness and the holiest by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he consecrated, and that's that word sanctified, for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, here we go, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience or our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Whoa, wait a minute. It got scary all of a sudden. It was really good, and then it got scary. Well, we already know why. Because we all know what happens when you set up a covenant relationship of an engagement, and then during the sequester time went to demonstrate her purity, no matter what happened from there, from here, we know that there is purity because she's sequestered. She goes off and plays the harlot. What is the response of the groom? Oh, well. Oh, no. Oh, no. That is not the response of a loving groom who has set aside a bride for himself. The Bible says you violate a man's wife, you're taking your life in your own hands, or into his hands, because that kind of rage only has one result. Proverbs gives us clear warning. You mess with somebody else's wife, um, you can expect anything and everything to be thrown at you from his rage. So, you're messing with the wife, the bride of God. Do you really think you can take that into your hands without cost? Do you really think we could do that with impunity? No expectation of any kind of response from God? Is God such a loving God to you that he tolerates that kind of activity? He has set himself apart in the flesh that he might set you apart to be holy as he is holy, that he might have intimacy with you. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of that, of his faithfulness to provide us that level of intimacy. And then we're going to violate that? By sinning willfully against him? He says, if you sin willfully against that, what do you have left? Nothing but his rage, his wrath, his anger. A fearful expectation, not a joyful one. We take these passages in Hebrews warning us of the after effects of of violating our faith in Christ and our walk with him, and we have weakened them, and we want to take them very seriously because they are given seriously. They are not tongue-in-cheek. They are not hypotheticals. They are very real. You have an expectation that if I do not set myself apart as God has set me apart and recognize that, that I have a response to that. I'm supposed to walk uprightly. I have these commands to obey him because he has sanctified me. Do you see it there? He has put within us this new man. He has done that work. He has accomplished all of that. And he has 
removed our sin, purified us by his blood, that we might be set apart to him. We have been sanctified by the will of God to all who believe. Now, you are to sanctify God in your heart. And this comes to the wife responsibility. The husband loves this gal, sets her apart, declares his will. His will is to be intimate with her and to have a lifelong relationship uh, and till death do us part. And now the wife has, we recognize, I think, that the wife has a responsibility to maintain that purity during that time. To demonstrate that she is responsive to that and receptive of that and she does that by sustaining her purity, sustaining her affection for him and him alone. And that's what God calls us for. He has done all of this to set us aside, and we have a glorious expectation. But if we do not sustain ourselves in the act of sanctification, in this being a set-apart people, and we go out there and party with the world and look like the world and talk like the world and, and love what the world has, then can we really expect God to say, you're mine, when we've never made ourselves him, his? We've never made him ours. We're sleeping around spiritually. Do you really think God is going to be okay with that? Between now and the feast, he's going to let you into the feast under those conditions? Really? No. Our expectation changes from one of a feast to one of wrath and judgment, indignation. And that's why Hebrews calls people, remember your faith, and to stay in it, to stay established in it, because the will of God is this intimacy. He has already given you the precursor of it, the Holy Spirit. And you deny that. You turn away from it. You violate that. You give yourself to others, to the world, to Satan, to the flesh. You give yourself to these. You cannot think in your mind that there aren't some ramifications eternally for that. To sin willfully after that work of God in our life, he says, what can be done for you? That's the question he really asks. What can really be done for you? God's already done everything, and you've rejected it by fostering sin in your life. And so we come to 1 John, another passage that says, Obey his commands. His commands are not grievous. I'm glad to obey them. Why? Because he made me his bride. I want to prepare myself for him. How do you prepare yourself for the wedding feast of the Lamb? Walk in his truth. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh if you walk in the Spirit. Now, I've had a couple of brides to be in my house now. 
I want to tell you what it's like to have brides. Oh, here they are. When they are brides to be in my house, I want to tell you what it was like. Almost every conversation somewhere around the, somewhere within 15 minutes had something to do with their plans for the wedding and for the house, the household, their relationship. And then rooms started filling up with things. You know, they started filling up with things, decorations. And pots and pans and dishes and things like that. They need to set up their own household. And they start planning and getting excited. And it captivated their mind, their body, their decisions. And I didn't notice any of them crying while they were doing it. They've been waiting all their life to do this. Well, you can't. Why are brides-to-be of Christ not doing the same? Why aren't we just captivated with the idea that we have just a few short years to put our household together for Christ? To plan for the wedding feast And what is it that Christ wants to see? He wants to see his bride dressed in white. And when we start thinking of righteousness as us getting ourselves prepared for the wedding feast. I know, it might be hard for the men here, so the ladies really are going to appreciate this sermon more than the men. But uh, why, why is that? I mean, I remember our engagement period with, with Joyce and I, and every time I went over to to Printy Hall to sit in the common area with her. She'd come down from her room, and she'd always had these books. You know what the books were? You know, you know, all the wedding planning books. So we had to sit there. Even though we'd already decided everything, we had to decide it all again, you know, and look at it some more, and we had to pick invitations, we had to do all this. And I didn't notice my wife being upset about that at all, or begrudging it. I might have been, but she wasn't. She was thrilled that she was captivated by, oh, that we'd be captivated with our preparations of our life with Christ. It should captivate our thinking. How can I put on more righteousness? How can I prepare myself better for my groom when he comes on that day? How can I Be a better bride. Or if you want to use the text out of of, um, uh, Corinthians there, or Hebrews, Hebrews 2, how can I be a better brother? How can I be a better child? How can I prepare myself for that? You see, we always tend to look at obedience from a negative perspective. Oh, I have to obey this stuff. Well, that's the whole point of 1 John, that obeying his commands isn't, burdensome. It's my joy because I'm the chosen bride and I'm going to plan to present myself to my groom in the best possible way. Now, Bible says, especially as you see that day coming. (laughs) Right? Do you see that in the text? 
as the day gets closer, what do brides do? Oh, they've stored up this stuff. They made the plans. They sent the invitations. They got the cake figured out. They got the caterer, the dagger. They, they've been working on their vows. They've even been meeting with pastor every week for well, it seems like eternity to most of them, I think, um, going through premarital counseling. They're doing all this stuff and, and all the requirements. And as the day gets closer, what's she doing? She's got some butterflies in her side, but what's she doing? Is she just carousing around? Oh, no, now we want to all those beauty treatments and they're taking, they gotta get the nails just right, they gotta get the hair just right, and everything is being prepped. As the day gets closer, you don't do less preparation, you get more active in it. And as Christ's coming approaches, we shouldn't be less diligent in righteousness, but more so to prepare ourselves for the wedding feast coming. These are the days of your sanctification. God set you apart historically. He is still setting you apart today through his Holy Spirit's presence in your life, that intimacy that you have. And it requires something of you that you respond by joyfully sanctifying yourselves in him. That we set ourselves apart and that we are not involved in immorality. They were not involved in sin, both in the flesh and in the spirit. They were not going to be involved in either one's kinds of sin. That I'm going to set myself apart to be more and more and more and more what Christ wants me to be because he wants this intimacy that we can only have if I'm holy because if I'm unholy on that day, how can the holy God be intimate with me? It's a lie and God can't participate in that. And so I have a responsibility to be holy as he is holy. It is the longing of my heart. It is the drive of my life. It is, it is what I wake up and go to bed thinking of is how can I be ready for Christ? This is what it means to be sanctified. It happens through his word and that's why we come to his word and we go, I want to be ready. Well, how do you know I'll be ready? Well, I get the magazine out that tells you how to get ready for the wedding feast. Here it is, the book. The wedding book. Your scriptures. You want to be ready for the feast? It's coming. And it's coming sooner than ever. We should be filling our time with how am I preparing myself for my Savior? How am I preparing myself for my Savior? How will he find me? And I think Christ brought this out when he said, when the Son of Man comes, what will he find? When he comes on that wedding processional, all the heavenly hosts, what will he find? And let's be quite frank here. If he's going to find people of faith, they have to be people of righteousness because you can't be one without the other. You cannot claim to be a person of faith and unrighteous. They just don't mix. We willfully engage ourselves in spiritual harlotry, that we willfully engage ourselves 
in active sin, in violation of our covenant agreement with God, and call ourselves a people of faith. It cannot be. What will the groom find when he comes calling for his bride? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for its power and truth. Lord, I thank you that you have set us aside for yourself. That you desire such intimacy with us is beyond our belief. Why? For there's nothing in us but everything in you, that you have loved us, the unlovable. And for this we can only marvel and rejoice You give us an opportunity now to walk worthy of that invitation, walk walk worthy of that intimacy that you have offered and paid for. Lord, such a small thing and such an exciting thing to be able to do that you've empowered us to do that. Lord, we are ashamed that we do not consider it the thrill of our life to live obediently to you. Change that in us, Lord. By your word today and your spirit convicting, change that. We want to change that. We want to anticipate your coming and prepare ourselves for you. That you might find a church glorious without spot or wrinkle without blemish, waiting for you with great anticipation, with our lamps trimmed and bright, ready for your arrival. Lord, we have violated that purity that you've called us to, that holiness. Lord, forgive us, please. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And we know that that joy is to walk in your truth. To fellowship with your spirit and with your saints. Lord, make that our joy. To prepare ourselves to be in your presence. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.